A message is titled today, The Birth of Christ, or Jesus' Birth Narrative. Considering the beginning of chapter 2 of Luke, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. We recognize the importance of stories. As a species, humanity is a species of story. This is one of the features that makes us unique from other created beings. If you ever get into a fun conversation with a philosopher, I pity you, but they might ask you, what is the difference between man and animals? Now, apart from mankind being made in the image of God, which we are and the animals are not, there is another thing that makes us distinct out of actually many things. But for the sake of today's message, what I'm talking about is the, the fact of story. Cats don't tell stories. Dogs don't tell stories. Goldfish don't tell stories. When my mother gets a new kitten to be friends with her cat named Bob, Bob feels no obligation to tell the new cat the background of the home which he has entered into. And he certainly makes no effort, we can tell through observation, he certainly makes no effort to explain the dangers of wandering too close to the street or of exploring too close to the coyote den located in the neighbor's property. Cats don't tell these stories. But humanity has been shaped by stories from the beginning of history to the present day. Every great story begins with a setting or an introduction. That setting might be something like this. Once upon a time, or in a galaxy far, far away. Now, I just want you to know that if you happen to have listened to sermons on today's text and you heard the preacher introduce his sermon by some of these same lines, I want you to know that I also heard that, but I put them in my notes before I heard that. So uh, that sermon that was preached 10 years ago by a pastor in Minneapolis whose name rhymes with John Piper, um, he was copying me, not me, him. So um, unlike these stories that... Start with once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. Today's story is true. Today's story is not myth or folklore, but in fact is true. And it begins with its historical setting. So if you were to be taking notes and you're trying to trace where I'm going, I started with point one, the importance of story. Point two, historical setting. So let's consider the historical setting. And it came to pass in those days. That there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Your translation might say taxed, taxation, registering, same point. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. Again, this is not a mythology. This is not a fairy tale. He is pointing to historical markers that can be evaluated. You can go back in time. You can click the left button on your Google Calendar until you get to roughly uh, three, the year three. Whether we're talking B.C. or A.D., there's a range of uh, scholarly debate about where this is precisely. But you can go back in time and you can find this guy named Caesar Augustus. He was real. He's a real person. And Quirinius was also a real person. These things are historical markers that, that you can examine. 
This is not mythology or fairy tale, but is a fact of history, and it is complete with all the historical markers necessary to prove its truthfulness. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we are delighted that you are here. And I would invite you to test and to see and to examine the evidence to see if these things are so. If there really was a person named Jesus and if he did the things he claimed to do, if he was the person he asserted himself to be. Jesus is strong enough to withstand your examination. Our religion is not a faith in faith. It's not a, trust me, take my word for it. Don't look too close. Don't ask for details. No, this is a faith in a true, objective, historical person. This is not the sort of thing that's like, oh, just trust me, take my word for it. Or even the, you know it's true because you get a burning in your bosom or you get a feeling deep inside and that's how we know. No, it's much more than this. It is based on the bedrock of truth. And that ultimate bedrock, that ultimate rock is Christ himself. So we have a historical setting. What we also see in all of this is that God is breaking into the human narrative. A perfectly ordinary couple that was going about their way, minding their own business. A very real, very human Couple. Again, not the stuff of myth and folklore and legend and fairy tale, but a genuine, real human couple that is as real as you or the person sitting next to you. This human couple could have been recorded in a history book, but without the birth of Christ, undoubtedly would not have been. They would not have been terribly exciting until God intervenes in their lives. More on that in chapter one. We're not going to read it because it's one of the longest chapters in the Bible and we don't have time for even what I have today, much less adding an extra chapter. But I do have a few highlights from it. At first glance, we might think that God's work in the lives of Mary and Joseph begins with this event, which I've described using the words God breaking in. But the fact is God has been working in their lives from long before this. Luke 1, verse 26 and following says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And considering what manner of greeting this was, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This this, uh, description from Luke 1 describes 
God breaking into their story here in Luke 1, but the fact is God is working in their lives long before the story begins, and this is true for both Mary and Joseph. We, we find their lineages described for us in the Bible from Matthew 1, which Jack read, or we all read together a few moments ago. Jesus' legal or royal lineage through Joseph is provided in Matthew 1. And what scholars believe, or some scholars believe, is Jesus' physical lineage through Mary provided in Luke 3, 23-38. There's a few general points to observe from those lists. God ordered the events of their ancestors' lives. And God ordered the events of their ancestors' lives thousands of years before Mary and Joseph were born. In fact, we know that God actually wrote this plan of redemption before the world was formed. 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20 says that Jesus shed his blood as a spotless sacrificial lamb, yet his death was ordained before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 speaks specifically of Jesus and calls him the lamb slain slain from the foundation of the world who has a book, and that book is called the Lamb's Book of Life, and this book has the names of everyone that God wrote down to be saved before he created the world. Not only has God been working in the lives of Mary and Joseph since long before they were, God has been working in the lives of each of us since long before we were. We know that the scope of God's sovereign rule stretches back before creation began to after the final judgment and extending on into eternity forever and ever. If we know that, which we do, it should be no difficulty to see God's gracious sovereignty in the lives of these people that are named in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. This, these lists include people such as Rahab the prostitute. If you've never read the Bible before, I'm telling you today, yes, Jesus has a a grandmother who was a prostitute. Jesus also has a grandmother named Ruth, the Moabitess. Moabite might might not be very meaningful for you, but imagine a, a people group that is despised. Imagine a people group that is considered very unclean and very hated by your group. Well, Ruth is from that. And then there's also a woman named Tamar. Tamar, also a grandmother of Jesus, is a woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to get pregnant by the man who was legally obligated to marry her to bring forth children, but refused to do so. So she took matters into her own hands, dressing up as a prostitute, taking his money in order to uh, conceive this child. This list of ancestors of Jesus also includes Bathsheba and David. That that situation involves, well, some bad stuff. Includes murder. There is so much perversion, sin, and unfaithfulness in these lists of names from Matthew 1 and Luke 3 that we cannot help but recognize the grace and mercy of God that redeems wicked people to accomplish his purposes that he would be the true hero of the story. God mercifully ordered all of the events of these people's lives to the end that they would be in the lineage of Christ. While we may not feel like God is involved in our lives, God is already involved in our 
lives. If you're here today, it is not by accident, but it is because of God's predetermined purpose. Now, it is clearly too late for you to get into Jesus's lineage or pedigree chart. But it is not too late to be adopted into the family of God and to call Jesus your elder brother and to be reconciled to God and to receive God as your father and to be in his family. It is not too late for that. You are not hearing this message today by chance. I suspect that there may be people in this room today who have felt the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin for quite some time now. Where you are attempting to sleep at night and there are voices inside your head that are conflicting. Some of those voices might say, you're a bad person. You don't have it together. Something is wrong. You're an enemy of God. And if you've heard those types of voices, those voices are telling you the truth. For in fact, none of us are sinless by nature. None of us are righteous by nature. We're not good people. We are sinners by nature. We have violated God's holy law. We have sinned against God and we need to be reconciled to God. And so God sent his son into the world in this event that we call the incarnation or Christmas. Jesus came into the world to save us, to save his people from their sin, to save sinners like you and like me. Because we are not righteous and there are in fact none who are righteous. No, not one. And so I suspect that there are people in this room who the Holy Spirit is convicting of your sin and showing you your sinfulness, your ungodliness, and your need for a Savior. And then you came into church today because it is Christmas Eve, and we are, in fact, delighted that you are here. So glad that you are here. But that none of that's by accident. And if the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of your sin for quite some time now, he is, in fact, speaking to you, and he is pricking your conscience even right now. And for you to be here today was no accident. It, was, it is not by chance. Just consider a few human factors. If you rode the train, you could probably talk to Gordon about the MTA. The MTA system had to be functioning for you to get here. With thousands of employees showing up for work. Not only today, but all the other days of this week to keep the trains functioning. Because believe it or not, they can't just show up and work on one day. They, they need to be working throughout the week in order to work on a day like Sunday. You're dependent on thousands of NYPD officers showing up on a daily basis to maintain some semblance of law and order in order to prevent this city from becoming utterly uninhabitable, not just slightly uninhabitable. And so causing you to either flee the city or to stay in your room and never leave for fear of danger. For you to be here today, someone had to come to New York City, whether it was you flying here for vacation the other day, or whether it was you moving here a few years ago, or some relative of yours taking the big step to pack their bags and to move here with two suitcases and a dream. Regardless of what those steps were, God ordered those steps to cause you to be in this room right now. Now, in my own life, God arranged hundreds of sequential events over a period of 20 plus, well, 32 years, but 20 plus years to result in being in this room right now preaching this sermon. If any of those events had not taken place, that string of dominoes that have fallen to bring us here on December 24th, 2023, this would not be happening. Because Rock Church doesn't normally meet at this time. And PBC does meet at this time. So if PBC didn't exist, you would not be in this room right now. 
So what I'm saying is God has ordered the events of not only your life, but my life and all of our lives in order for this moment to take place. It is not a chance that you are here today. And in fact, God is speaking to you through the preached word. Now, something we must consider As we're thinking of Mary and Joseph and their actions and how God has ordained the events of their lives, there is a significant factor that if you're new to Christianity, you need to know about this, and it's called prophetic fulfillments. So there are prophecies in the Old Testament. There are prophecies that are given about this guy named Jesus, and there's a whole bunch of them. But we have a few that I used. I'm not sure why I used letters instead of numbers, so I'm not sure exactly how many we have. But we go in the alphabet up up to letter P. So if you know your alphabet and numbers really well, you can tell me how many that is. But we're up to, we will run through a series of prophecies. Everything about Mary and Joseph's actions in this story and the details of Jesus' birth narrative were saturated with prophetic significance. These are things that were written beforehand, hundreds of years beforehand. And believe it or not, there is historical and manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, that these things were truly written beforehand. So if you've got your skeptic hat on, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're thinking, I'm glad you're thinking critically. But these prophecies were truly prophecies. They were not just written down after the fact. Jesus, the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. The prophecy says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and he is recognized as the ultimate ruler with authority over all the nations. That's A. B. Jesus was the virgin born, Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 22 through 23 speaks of this fulfillment, stating that the birth of Jesus to Mary was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. If you've never heard of the Isaiah scrolls, you should look them up. C, Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Both Matthew 2.1 and Luke 2.4-7 confirm that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This has prophetic significance. It is a fulfillment of this prophecy. D, Jesus' infancy included his flight to Egypt from Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is fulfilled in Matthew 2.14 and 15. It reveals that Joseph, Mary, and the infant Jesus fled to Egypt to escape King Herod's massacre of the infants. E, the slaughter of infants surrounded Jesus' birth, described in Jeremiah 31.15. A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Matthew 2, 16 through 18 recounts the tragic events of Herod's massacre of these infants in Bethlehem. F, Jesus is the branch of Jesse, Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. So it's fulfilled. Jesus is often referred to as the branch or the root of Jesse in the New Testament, and it symbolizes his Davidic lineage recorded in Matthew 1. G. Jesus is the descendant of David, Isaiah 9, 7. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The fulfillment in Matthew, the the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 establish Jesus's lineage as a descendant from David, fulfilling this promise. H, Jesus is a ruler from Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Matthew 2, 1 confirms that Jesus, the Messiah, was born in Bethlehem. I, Jesus, is the star and scepter described in Numbers 24, 17. The prophecy says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The star that led the Magi to Jesus' birthplace is often seen as a symbolic fulfillment of this prophecy, Matthew 2.2. J, Jesus ushered in a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jesus inaugurated this new covenant through his sacrificial death and resurrection, as mentioned in Matthew 26, 28, and Luke 22:20. 20. K, Jesus is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Galatians 4.4 highlights that Jesus was born of a woman to redeem humanity from sin. L. Jesus is a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Acts 3.22 and 23 declares Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy, the prophet greater than Moses. M, Jesus is a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Fulfillment, Jesus, the light of the world. He fulfills this prophecy by bringing salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. N, Jesus is the rejected stone. Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes this verse in reference to himself in Matthew 21, 42, emphasizing his role as the rejected yet crucial cornerstone. Oh, Jesus is the Son of God, Psalm 2, 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This verse finds its fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the Son of God. Matthew 3, 17, and Acts 13, 33. And last, but not least, and there are more, but just for today, P. Jesus is a child to be born, a son to be given, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. This verse is a majestic description of the birth and the nature of Jesus fulfilled in the person of Christ as seen in the New Testament. Our story today, and in fact, the story of Jesus is packed full of prophecies and prophetic fulfillment. God ordered the events of Mary and Joseph's life from before they were born by even ordering the lives of their ancestors so that they would be in his lineage and so that he would, in fact, come to be. But let's look back at our text from Luke 2. 
Joseph, verse four, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day, In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This verse, verse 14 the message that summarizes the angel's pronouncement, this verse functions like a summary of the point of this whole sequence of events. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The whole point of Jesus' incarnation, the whole point of his coming to earth is for the glory of God in the highest. That is the ultimate purpose, to bring honor and glory to God. That's the reason for this whole plan of redemption in the first place. That's the reason why God, as the song says, we don't sing. Um, I would love it if we did. It's a good song. God did not rip out the page. After Adam and Eve fell, instead of tearing out the page and starting over again, no, God, in fact, um, puts together this plan He put the plan together beforehand, but he rolls this plan out instead of tearing out the page and starting over again. No, the story of redemption is a better story than if there was no fall in the first place. So this story of redemption is for the glory of God. That's the reason why it exists. This is glory to God in the highest. And then on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So we receive peace. God gets glory, we get peace. And there is this, um, this opposite nature of it. So, so we, God gets glory as we get this peace through this reconciliation. And we get peace as God gets glory. So the more glory that God receives, the more peace we have. And the more peace we have, the more glory God receives. But None of that is happening apart from the incarnation. There is no redemption. There is no glory of God in this event if there is no incarnation. There is no salvation for sinners if there is no incarnation. There is no ultimate peace without Jesus coming to earth. And so we consider point four, the consequences of these things. Glory to God from men. Peace to men from God. Glory to God from men and women. And peace 
to us, humanity, from God. Those who have been reconciled by the incarnate Son are reconciled to God, and they do have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, uh, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is a fact for all who are saved. You go from being at war with God to then being at peace with God. And that is, that is the first uh, thing that happens when you walk through those gates. So you are suddenly now on the inside. You are on team Jesus. And now you have peace with God. The war that you used to have with God is over, and now you have peace. So if you're sitting here today, you're not a Christian. Sorry, you're sitting here today, and you would claim to be a Christian, but you still consider yourself at war with God. I hate to break it to you, but you still need to be reconciled to God. Because if you're at war with God, you're not a Christian. Because when you're a Christian, you have peace with God. Everybody has a relationship to God. It's either a good one or a bad one. So... It's not that when you get saved, you begin a relationship with God. No, you are reconciled, and so you begin a good relationship with God because before you had a bad relationship, and you need that to be restored and reconciled. So when you are reconciled, when you are saved, when you trust in Jesus as the Savior for you, a sinner, you are reconciled to God, and you do have peace with God. This is a fact. When you come to Christ, your war with God is truly over. What this means practically is that you, locked in an empty room, it's not empty because you're in it, you locked into, in a room by yourself, just you and God, in that setting, you have peace with God. A Christian has peace with God, even if, that is, if he is nothing else, if, if there's nothing else that you have. Christians are at peace with God. Consequence number one, peace, peace to men. Sorry, point two, but point one is glory to God. But beyond this, not only do you have peace with God, but Christ brings peace among his people. Christ, has, Christ brings peace among his people, and there's two components to this. The first is that you have peace with yourself. There is peace among his people, and so you Get inner peace from Christ. Now, I'm not um, ignorant enough to assume or to, to believe that everybody in this room has inner peace, even people who are Christians. I know that many people in this room have all sorts of turmoil within them. And so the thought of being locked in an empty room by themselves is terrifying because then it's just them and their thoughts and they don't have inner peace. Well, I'm telling you that this is available to you. And it is available to you through Jesus, through Christ. There are more resources available from Christ than what you currently have tapped into. And then the third thing after this, so peace with God, peace with yourself, and then the last is peace with other Christians. Why? Because you're on the same team. When you are reconciled to God, you join Team Jesus, and now being on the same team, you ought to have peace with one another. The reason you have this is because you've been reconciled to the one Lord, one God who's 
father of us all. It is not a good thing. It is not a good character trait to be at war with absolutely everyone. We can have disagreements over doctrine with other groups or other churches or denominations. But we are, in fact, one with every other born-again Christian on the planet. John 17 describes this. Jesus prays that his people would be one. And so we should not wear it as a badge of honor to not get along with anyone. No, that's, that's bad, actually. Romans 12 tells us that if it is possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. We should be people who love peace. We pursue peace. We seek peace. We're easy to get along with. We're easy to be around and easy to be friends with. We don't have to walk into a room and announce to every other Christian in the room that I have a different view on this, this, and this than you do. As Reformed folks, we have a reputation that precedes us, and that reputation is, oh, if you didn't, uh, didn't, you couldn't afford to go to college, don't worry, you could just start to argue, pick a fight with a Calvinist, and you'll get a lecture for free. That's the reputation, and that's a tragic reputation. So much so that there's these Reformed jokes out there, like the one I just told. And they're true. There's so much truth in all of these jokes that, yeah, a lot of Calvinists are really difficult people to get along with. And when they are being that kind of person, they are not emulating the fruit of the Spirit. That it is, it is, in fact, okay to enter a room with other Christians and then they know that you're the Reformed guy or the Reformed girl in the room and so they don't happen to like that. So they're going to just try and poke at you. They're going to try and pick at your the hobby horses they assume that you have. And so then they start making jokes about you. It's okay for you to let those roll off your back. Especially as we go into the Christmas Day celebrations that might happen tomorrow. Suppose you go to your charismatic friend's house and they start making jokes about praying or praying in tongues or something like that. And you can just ignore those jokes and not allow that to result in conflict. When you do that, when you choose not to fight over these differences, when you choose to embrace the reality of the peace that we have, that we are on the same team, I believe that when we take those steps, we are walking in accord with the Holy Spirit because we are living out the reality that we have been reconciled to the one Lord and God overall. And when you feel that fire in your belly that just starts out of nowhere and just appears from nothing, that's, that causes you to, I just want to fight that person. I just, want to, I just want to dig at them. That's not from God. That should be rejected. It should be resisted. Maybe you need to step into a side room and pray and say, God, please help me not to be combative with my loved one or my relative that I have to sit next to for the next two hours at this lovely Christmas dinner. Help me to be a person who, who walks in and demonstrates this peace towards relatives that I might not necessarily like a whole lot. Help me to live out the reality of this consequence of the incarnate Savior who came 
to receive glory from us in order to give us peace. So we have peace with God and we have peace with ourselves and then we have peace with others. Help me to live that reality. But let me ask you a more simple question, and that is, do you know this peace? Do you know this peace with God? Or are you at war with God? Today could be the day where you lay down your weapons, where you lay down the hostility and say, you know what, God, I give up. I'm willing to lay down my fight to receive your son as my savior. If you have never trusted in Christ, may this Christmas season, even this day today, Christmas Eve 2023, be the day that you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. That you would trust in Jesus. That you would lay down your hope in your own self-righteousness. Turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and trust in Jesus alone as your Savior. May this be that day. And if it is not, and you're not a Christian, I would ask you, why not? What is holding you back? Is it family pressure? Well, how's that going to, what's that going to do for you 50 years from now? Or 100 years from now? Or 500 years from now? You're going to die. At some point, are you reconciled to God? Perhaps it's family pressure that's holding you back. Perhaps it's tradition. Maybe in your tradition, you're just like, well, hey, we, my people, are not Christian. Maybe it's the Christianity is a white man's religion thing, or maybe it's some other version of this. What's that going to do for you when you stand before God? Nothing. You need to get right with God. And if you're not right with God, if you have not been reconciled to God, today needs to be that day. As it says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Yes, we recognize the sovereignty of God in all things, but we also recognize that the preaching of the gospel involves words like this. You must be born again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, I would urge you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe that he came into the world to save sinners like you. Believe that he died on the cross to pay your sin debt that you owe to God. Believe that he died to reconcile you to God, to save you from the wrath of God, to die under the wrath of God, to prevent you from going to hell, to open wide the gates of heaven for you. This is what he has done for sinners. And he's done it for all kinds of sinners. From the least to the greatest, the youngest to the oldest, the richest to the poorest, the uneducated, the highly educated, the successful to the homeless. Any type of person can be saved through Jesus. If you say, well, I am too bad of a person. I cannot be saved. You don't know what I've done. Well, I would tell you your sins are what qualify you for a savior. He came only to save the sinners. So if you recognize your sin, that's great. That's the first step. You must first see that you are lost before you can be found. The person who doesn't think that they're lost is never going to stop and ask for directions. The person who doesn't think they're a sinner is never going to look for a savior. So if you think that you have sinned too much to be saved, well, I would say, in fact, that's not true. 
There are people who have sinned more than you in the Bible, but I'm glad that you recognize that you are a wretched sinner because you are. But this Bible is packed full of stories of wicked people that Jesus has saved. Half our New Testament was written by a guy named Paul. Paul killed Christians before he became one. There's a guy named Peter. He was one of Jesus' inner circle. He betrayed Jesus as Jesus was being crucified. He cursed and swore, saying, I don't know that man. But yet, Jesus saved him and restored him and actually brought him back after Peter thought, this is far too late for me. God must be done with me. Jesus brings him back and says, no, Peter, feed my sheep. If you think that you have sinned too much to be saved, let me urge you that 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 awareness that you have sinned, that is step one of qualifying you to be saved. And then the second thing is to look to Jesus. To stop looking at yourself, to look away from yourself for your salvation, and to see Jesus as the Savior of sinners who extends his arms wide open and he says, come unto me. Come unto me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all who are weighed down by the guilt and the weight of your sin. Come to me. Would you believe in the Savior today? Do you know this peace from God? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you have recorded the story of the birth of Christ. That it is a historical fact. It is not a fairy tale or myth. That it has all these factors that we, that we could research or look up or study, that there are prophetic fulfillments that Mary and Joseph uh, were a part of, that you were working in their lives before they were born to accomplish your purposes And Lord, we thank you that the purpose for all of this is the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. That we would have peace with God. I pray for those who are here today who are not Christians, those who are not saved, that you would open the eyes of their heart. Cause them to see their need for a Savior and Jesus as the Savior of sinners. That these things are true. He is real. And he really did live and die and rise again in the place of the guilty. I pray that this Christmas season would be the first Christmas as a Christian for a great many people in this room. I pray for those who are lost, that they would be found, that they would come to Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.